Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Table. I'm your host, Gabby. And I'm Hussein, and today we're going to be talking about setting a minimum age for juvenile justice system involvement. And we're going to get into what that actually means in just a second. But first, Gabby, can you tell us why this is practically a problem? Yeah, so I'm going to tell a story about a 10-year-old boy from Canton, Michigan. On April 30th, 2019, a 10-year-old boy was arrested and charged with assault for hitting a 9-year-old boy after a game similar to dodgeball called Tips. And um, Hussein, you explained this to me off mic, but Tips is basically a game kind of like a volleyball-dodgeball combo where you're trying to catch and throw the ball midair. So um, after this game was over, the 10-year-old boy uh, allegedly threw a rubber ball at the 9-year-old Uh, hitting him in the face and giving him a concussion. The injured boy's mother told WXYZ News that her son had been hit with a ball twice before this incident. So a note here, it's unclear who called the police, but a spokesperson for the school stated that the incident was handled in alignment with the student code of conduct and implied that they did not call the authorities. Thankfully, these charges were dropped. However, this is not an isolated incident nor did the prosecutor in this case take issue with charging a 10-year-old with assault. Cases across the United States look shockingly similar to this one. In Orlando, there was the arrest of a six-year-old for throwing a temper tantrum in school, and in Kansas City, there was the arrest of a seven-year-old for refusing to go to the principal's office. And these are just three brief examples of kids across the country being arrested for essentially youthful behavior. Yeah, Gabby, those stories are really troubling. And as someone that spends a lot of time with little kids, seven-year-olds are really small, right? They're three, four feet tall, full of innocence. And that innocence is ripped away the second they're put in handcuffs or in zip ties. And so today we're going to talk about a lot of aspects of uh, raising the minimum age of juvenile jurisdiction. We're going to talk about arrests, competency, and jurisdiction. Starting with arrests, I want to first say that changing the minimum age of jurisdiction for courts doesn't necessarily change the minimum age of arrest, but let's talk about the magnitude of the problem here. Uh, 1.2 to 1.6% of detained youth are under the age of 12. 1.1% of youth in commitment or residential facilities are under the age of 12, and in 2019, 930 youth under the age of 12 were arrested, and 151 of them were 10 or younger. And I know this goes without saying, but we can't emphasize this enough. Arrest is traumatic for anyone. It's traumatic for adults, and there's a lot of research that bears that out. And it's particularly traumatic for young people. Being detained against your will, putting your hands in zip ties or handcuffs, I mean, that is a terrible thing for a child to have to go through. And we have information here that this has happened to hundreds of kids. Yeah, absolutely. Arrest is scary at any point in your life, but especially when you're a child and you really don't understand the impact or the consequences of what's happening. So um, the second thing that you mentioned was jurisdiction. So you just talked about arrest and how jurisdiction doesn't necessarily impact the age of arrest. And jurisdiction is basically the age in which a court has the ability to have power over the kid. So as of January 2022, over half the states, uh, that's 26 states in the U.S., still had no minimum age for prosecuting children. And this is what is referred to as jurisdiction. So there's no federal guidance on minimum age standards. And across the country, the minimum age spans from seven years old in Florida to 13 years old 
in New Hampshire and Maryland. So in Florida, a seven-year-old can be arrested and tried in juvenile court, whereas in uh, New Hampshire and Maryland, that happens at age 13. So you can see there's a really vast difference across the country for when kids are considered competent and able to stand trial. So it's also worth noting that many states have exceptions to their minimum age rule. So in New Hampshire, for example, um, they make exceptions to the minimum age rule for those being tried for violent crimes. So if a kid is arrested for assault or something, they could potentially be um, tried in the court under age 13. So that's the domestic context for a minimum age of juvenile jurisdiction. Let's talk about the international context a little bit like we do with a lot of issues. Canada has a minimum age of 12. Internationally, we see a range of 10 to 18 years old, with 14 being the most common. In 2007, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child stated that countries should set the minimum age of juvenile jurisdiction at 12 years old. In 2019, they moved that up to 14 to align with modern science and research. They also stated that nations should not allow for exceptions that would allow for youth to be held criminally responsible at a lower age, right? If we're going to set a lower age, setting exceptions to that would violate the principle of having a minimum age to begin with. The United States is the only UN member nation that hasn't ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and there's a lot of political reasons for that. But it's worth noting that the entire international community has recommended 14 years as the minimum age of juvenile jurisdiction, and we are not in alignment with that. Yeah, so, you know, at the top, we talked about one specific case in Michigan and then a couple nationally about why this is a practical issue. But digging in a little bit deeper, something that we've sort of touched on very briefly in other episodes is this capacity to stand trial and competency issue. So um, in previous episodes, we've talked about being able to meaningfully assist in your own defense. Um, and that's sort of something that comes along with competency. And when we talk about competency, there are definitely different standards depending on where you're looking. But one of those standards is a case called Dusky versus the United States. And that's a Supreme Court case in which the Supreme Court ruled that competency to stand trial is a constitutional right and established a standard for determining it. So this case doesn't particularly pertain to youth, but it is used as a justification for why young children are not fit to stand trial. And so the standard determined in that case is as follows. The test must be whether he has sufficient present ability to consult with his lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding, and whether he has a rational as well as factual understanding of the proceedings against him. And so this uses gender-specific language, but the standard is not gender-specific. So basically what that just means is that you have to be able to, again, meaningfully assist in your own defense. And you have to understand these conversations that are going on with your lawyer and how the proceedings are going. And so I would say most adults don't even understand the court process. And, you know, rightfully so, it's very confusing and it's a convoluted process. So we certainly can't expect children to understand it either. So that's sort of the national standard. And then Michigan has a specific competency law as well. And this is MCL 330.2062. And that standard reads, a juvenile 10 years of age or older is presumed competent to proceed 
unless the issue of competency is raised by a party. A juvenile less than 10 years of age is presumed incompetent to proceed. So what this means is basically that if you're under 10 years old, you are presumed incompetent to proceed in a trial and in a court process. And we mentioned some cases earlier of kids under 10 years of age. Granted, they were in different states, but you know, we've heard of kids in Michigan at least being arrested under age 10. And so we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into this competency issue and potentially how a kid under 10 years of age could end up in Michigan youth justice system. And so we don't have a true sense of how many kids under 10 are in the system because of the uh, lack of consistent data across Michigan, which we've talked about before. But the way that it would likely happen is that with this competency statute, if a case was filed on a youth under 10 years old, a competency hearing would be requested and take place. And if the evaluator found the child competent, then the case would proceed. So it would have to be sort of something that was requested in order to take a look at that kid's competency. And again, this is not necessarily the only way in which a competency hearing can take place, but this is sort of one way that a kid under 10 could end up in the system. Gabby, thanks so much for diving really deep into that. Switching gears now, we can't talk about the minimum age of juvenile jurisdiction without addressing the issue of adultification, the adultification of black children in particular. Now, adultification or adultification bias, as it's sometimes called, is a phenomenon that describes the misperception of youth of color as older than they actually are. And this particularly affects black youth And to go deeper into this, we're going to reference a 2014 study linked in the show notes called The Essence of Innocence, Consequences of Dehumanizing Black Children. Researchers found that black youth are seen as less innocent and more culpable after the age of nine. Black youth and adults were rated as significantly less innocent than white children and adults. And the study participants overestimated the age of black youth by an average of four and a half years. Four and a half years, meaning that even a 13-year-old could be perceived as an adult. Now, I want to note that this study focused uh, particularly on black boys because they're overrepresented in the system. Our findings suggest that although most children are allowed to be innocent until adulthood, black children may be perceived as innocent only until deemed suspicious, right? There's something that happens and they are not given that benefit of the doubt. And even, you know, after they're cleared of any wrongdoing, that scarlet letter follows them for a long time. We've talked about that before. The result of this dehumanization follows youth throughout any involvement that they have in the juvenile justice system. For example, any time that the judgment of an individual is outcome determinative for a youth, say a mental health professional or a judge or a law enforcement officer in particular, and this study talks about the effect of dehumanization on law enforcement, any time someone's judgment about a youth and their innocence is at play, that youth is at risk, right? And in particular, we have evidence now that black youth are at significantly greater risk than their peers. So it's gonna take a long time to correct that. Setting a minimum age is just one part in remediating these uh, these terrible consequences. Absolutely. And this is a very surface level overview of this report. You know, we didn't want to go so in depth that we were essentially just reading the report on the podcast. But um, I do highly recommend that everyone read this report because it goes into great detail about how the dehumanization of Black kids happens. And you read the final line of that study, but I want to read it one more time just to really hammer it home. So the final line in the study is, in other words, our findings suggest that although most children 
are allowed to be innocent until adulthood, Black children may be perceived as innocent only until deemed suspicious. And so I think that really sums up what the study is saying and what the study found is that Black kids are not afforded the same protections that white kids are. So this can lead to harsher punishments and longer sentences for Black kids. And Black children are 18% more likely to be sentenced as adults than white children. And I think that is a pretty clear line between seeing Black kids, particularly Black boys, as adults at age 13, right? So of course, if you're seeing these kids as adults, you're going to be sentencing them and treating them like adults. And for example, in Michigan, 29% of our kids are youth of color, but they make up 73% of child offenders serving life without parole sentences. That's a huge disparity. So we've talked a lot about how, um, how this is a practical issue, why it's a practical issue, and the impact particularly on our Black kids. And there is no current pending change to this law. However, the Governor's Task Force on Juvenile Justice Reform will be releasing recommendations this summer, and we're really hopeful that a recommendation for setting a minimum age will be included in this. And MCYJ's executive director is actually on this task force, and so he, of course, has been advocating for change such as this while on that task force. Once that report comes out, we will certainly share it on our social media. So be sure that you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast so that you know when our new episodes drop. Um, and we'll certainly cover that when those recommendations come out. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next time at the table.